0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for June 14th, 2019. In this week's episode, Josh and Kirk discuss the iPod Touch. Are passwords going to become obsolete? And privacy policies aren't exactly an easy read. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long.
1: Josh, have you installed any of the betas of the new operating systems, macOS Catalina or iOS 13?
2: Um, I do have a virtual machine of Catalina. So um, I'm running an operating system within an operating system on my MacBook Pro. Um, But uh, I haven't really played with it too much yet. Um, I kind of booted it. I made sure it was working. And then I haven't really had time to play with it since then.
1: Did you have problems doing that? Because I had a virtual machine of Mojave in in VMware Fusion, and I was unable to update it. Apparently, there's a thing you have to do. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. A friend of mine worked this out and found that in the instructions that he found, it actually missed another step that he needed to do. But I couldn't get mine to work, so what I've done is I have an external SSD, that I have connected to my MacBook Pro, so I can launch that if I want. Ah, I see.
2: Yeah, and that's probably the easiest way to do it, actually. Um, yeah, it's uh, it does tend to get tricky, <laughs> um, especially with beta versions of operating systems because they're brand new, and uh, there's not necessarily a lot of documentation on how to get them set up in a, a virtual machine environment.
1: What about iOS? Do you have something you can install iOS 13 on?
2: Um, no, actually I, I don't. Cause we, we do have, um, an older iPhone. We have an iPhone six, but the iPhone six that's too old. is too old to run yep. iOS 13. Um, and normally that's the device so that I would try things on first, uh, just experimentally.
1: For, for years I've used an iPod touch because it's an inexpensive device. I don't really care about making phone calls with a beta. It's interesting Apple introduced a new iPod Touch 7th generation just a few weeks before, in fact, just a week before the WWDC, because the iPod Touch 6th generation, which came out, I believe, in 2015, won't run iOS 13. And that's a little bit surprising. We were talking before the show that someone who bought an iPod Touch 6 months ago is going to be stuck at the current operating system, won't get updates, won't get security updates, which you're particularly sensitive about and that they would need to have a new iPod Touch. It seems a little bit unfair that they're not supporting at least two generations of hardware back. For the iPhone, it goes back to the 6S and the iPhone SE, which is, the iPhone SE came out around the 7, I think. Um, but it goes back as far as the 6S. So that's one, two, three, four, that's five years back for the iPhone. I guess the iPod Touch is only going back... Well, it's only going back a few weeks. But if you consider 2015, that's the gap of four years. What it seems to be is that the iPod Touch 6th generation is running an A8 Processor and the new one, an A10. Perhaps the A10 is the minimum that iOS 13 needs. Well,
2: right. That's that's what Apple has decided is the baseline for iOS 13. So here here's here's the thing. So what really bothers me about this is that it's not not just people who bought an iPod Touch six months ago. This isn't this is even people who bought an iPod Touch. Two weeks ago, right before the 7th gen came out. And now they're stuck with that device. I mean, maybe in some cases, you know, if they bought it right before the new model came out, maybe they can, you know, they'll still be within a return window and can exchange You've
1: it. usually got a two-week return window, Yeah. yeah.
2: But um say you're just outside that window. And now you've got, you know, iOS 13 coming out in a couple of months, you've got a device that's a couple of months old, that's not going to get security updates potentially. And I, I should say we're making an assumption here that Apple is going to continue its typical practice for iOS, where they only release security updates as part of the mainline current release. So iOS 13 then would only be getting security updates, not iOS 12 or earlier.
1: Yeah, it it is strange to have a device that's so recently available, not not able to run the operating system. Especially because, and I think we mentioned it um, a couple weeks ago, the iPod Touch is very widely used in industry. I, I see people who are wondering why the iPod Touch is updated. Um, it's very widely used in warehouses. It's a small, inexpensive device. That you can put into a sort of a a, a housing that has uh, a laser scanner, so you can scan barcodes. Um, it's got Wi-Fi, and for inventory management things like that, it's very it's very common. They use them in the Apple stores here in these big devices that have scanners and extra batteries. So obviously, um, this is a device that if it's widely used by industries, and all of a sudden they find that the device is you know end of life as it was, that's not really very positive.
2: No, and this, this, this bothers me because regardless of what environment you're using it in, whether it's for a business purpose or even if it's a home use, um, you know, you think about the, the types of vulnerabilities that, that tend to be found and patched in the latest, you know, iOS versions. And you've got some really serious things sometimes that could, uh, you know, make it a problem to, to continue using an older device. Um, you think about, I, we just recently mentioned the FaceTime bug uh, from several months ago and, and how, you know, although in that particular case, it was something that Apple could at least um, stop on, on their server side. Most of the time, these types of bugs are something that cannot be fixed server side. This is something that you have to have a patch installed on the device. And, so in those kind of scenarios, what's Apple going to do? I mean, are, are, maybe they would re- release, uh, if it's a severe enough vulnerability, maybe they would go back and release a patch for iOS 12. Um, I, I, that's a possibility. You know, I would certainly like to see this happen um, where Apple would do the same thing that they're doing for macOS. Where, uh, so when Catalina comes out, Based on Apple's typical past practice, they would release uh, security-only updates then for Mojave and High Sierra, because those are the two previous versions of macOS. That's, that's been Apple's tradition. And I would love to see Apple do this for iOS, even if it's just one operating system back, even if it's just iOS 12. This is something that Apple really should be doing, especially because of this iPod touch issue.
1: Well said, John. Thank you. <laughs> I like your conviction here. You should run for office. On the Mac side, Catalina is compatible with Macs going back to 2012. That's a lot. That's seven years. That's not bad. Um, the iMac, MacBook Air, and MacBook Pro, and Mac Mini from 2012 or later. Um, the MacBook, which was launched in 2015, so every MacBook model. Every iMac Pro launched in 2017. And the Mac Pro from 2013 and later. So the Mac Pro, the trash can, and the new um, ultra-chic, expensive cheese grater are all compatible. So on the Mac side, you couldn't have recently bought a Mac and find that it's not eligible for an upgrade.
2: I've actually tried to pay attention to Apple's cycles in the past to try to predict what they're going to do, what models they're going to support. And, um, I remember back in 2011, I wrote a blog post about how Apple was ending security updates for a Mac that was just barely five years old. And, and they've done that pretty consistently, um, since that time. Um, it used to be that they would support machines that were a little bit older than that, maybe six years or seven years. Um, but Apple more recently has been only supporting, uh, certain Mac models for, you know, F- fewer years than that. Um, but, but this iPod Touch thing is very different because now we're talking about a matter of months when presumably they won't yeah. be getting updates.
1: And if we look at which iPads are compatible, so iPad OS is now a new, it's a fork of iOS. A fork is when an, uh, an operating system splits into two versions. And it goes back as far as the iPad Air 2 and the iPad Mini 4 now I have a new iPad mini 5 fifth generation the iPad Mini 4 is two years ago at least the iPad Air 2 is even older than that and then of course the the iPad naming is really hard to follow so it, it, it handles the iPad sixth generation and fifth generation right um, It would be good if they put years like they do for the Mac instead of just generation or for instance all the iPad pros are compatible. Um, I believe the 9.7 inch iPad Pro is three years old, if I remember. So they are going back a lot further on the iPad. Well, that's good. <laughs> At least we have. It's the iPod Touches. The iPod Touches the odd one yeah. out for some reason. Well, it hadn't been updated in a long time, and there's a big difference in process
2: right and actually from a lot of perspectives the ipod touch is the odd one out right i mean it's this is the device that doesn't have a yearly update cycle uh, you know, every once in a while, Apple will decide, okay, fine, we'll throw out a new version of the iPod Touch. But they don't really put a lot of time and effort, it, does, it seems, into engineering these. I mean, the design of the seventh generation iPod Touch that they just came out with looks very much like iPhones from a bygone era. You know, these, these still have a button on the front and a huge bezel, you know, forehead and chin, people call them.
1: And it's thin, yeah. I've just been looking up the hardware specifications of some of these devices. The iPad Mini 4, which is supported by iPadOS 13, has an A8 processor, the same as the sixth generation iPod Touch. Now, the iPod Touch only has one gig of RAM compared to two. Maybe that's the difference. Um, maybe it has something to do with the graphics, although the graphics look to be the same. So it really is the odd man out.
2: It is sort of arbitrary often when Apple decides that they're going to cut off a particular model from getting the latest OS updates.
1: I don't think it's arbitrary. I think that there's hardware requirements that perhaps it's not just the processor, perhaps there's something else. In any case, if you do want to run iOS 13 betas and you don't have an old iPhone, I know you said before the show you have an iPhone 6, so you can't use that. Um, the, the, The new iPod Touch is a pretty good deal at $200 for 32 gigs. It's a nice device and, and I hold this in my hand. It's so thin and light and small and it reminds me of the older, um, kind of like the iPhone 4. Remember when the iPhone 4 was the first one that didn't have that uh, sort of beveled back, you know, it had that flat, the flat sides and all that. And this is even thinner. It's really, it's a nice device. I'm, I'm a, I've been a fan of the iPod Touch. It was my first iOS device because, um, I didn't need an iPhone where I lived at the time when, uh, when it, when they came out, but the iPod Touch was something that I liked. So I think it's a nice device, worth checking out. We've got an interesting story about Mozilla and Firefox, and we've talked about how Mozilla is a company that does Firefox. And a while back, we talked about a service that they had launched called Send, which was free. You could send files to someone up to a couple of gigabytes. They are starting to plan for a paid subscription service. It will include three features. Uh, It will include the free Send service. Well, it's already free. It'll also include a VPN and cloud storage. They're talking about something at $10 a month. Why are they all $10 a month? You know, all these subscriptions. Um, the idea of them including a VPN is interesting. I think Opera already does that, don't they? And it might even be free. Yeah. Um, but the the first thing I thought is what if Apple offered a VPN as part of their iCloud service? Wouldn't that be interesting?
2: Yeah, um, it, it, it would. And this is something that, you know, for Apple... A company that's always talking about privacy. Uh, I would be surprised if they're not looking into that. Um, you know, a, a VPN, as we've talked about on past episodes, we've had whole episodes where we've just talked about VPNs. If, if you haven't listened to those or if it's been a while, you can link in the, link show, in notes. the show notes, of course. Um, but VPNs have a lot of functionality that is very beneficial if you're, if you really care about your privacy. Um, so it seems like it could be a good move for Apple. Now there's certain things we were kind of discussing this a little bit before the, before the show about why Apple might not want to, or if they did, why they might not be the best VPN provider out there. Um, one reason is that, you know, there's a lot of people who want a VPN, want a no logs policy, meaning, uh, you know, They don't want anybody, no no matter whether it's the government or or hackers who break into the VPN provider's servers or whatever it might be, they don't want... Or advertising or, companies. Yeah, and anybody. They don't want anybody to know where they've been online, right? And so um, there are some VPN companies uh, like CyberGhost that um, have a strict no-logs policy where they say, you know, we're, we're not logging anything that you're doing. There's there's not even a log, period.
1: Full disclosure, CyberGhost is an Indigo partner. Right.
2: Um, so... You know, this is something that Apple probably couldn't get away with because Apple has established business presences in so many different countries throughout the world. And it would probably be illegal in many of those countries for them to not log and so either apple in
1: case law enforcement wanted access to people's records yeah
2: so either apple would have to decide to comply with law enforcement of that country which apple does i mean they've done that for china and you know and and many other countries um or they would just have to decide not to go into the vpn business i i'm i think if apple were to go into vpn then they probably would log and they probably would, you know, comply with the laws of whatever countries, which means certain countries, they just wouldn't even have the VPN service, which would be a little bit awkward.
1: Like China, most likely. Right. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. If you or someone
0: you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intigo.com today and then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 50%. That's PODCAST19 to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intigo, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit
1: Intigo.com today. Okay, before the break, I mentioned we were going to talk about Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. The reason that this late 18th century philosophical text, known in the original German as Critique der reinen Vernunft, uh, has come up is because the New York Times did an article where they read 150 privacy policies and found that they were an incomprehensible disaster. And they compared some of these to various books, and they found that, for instance, The first chapter of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason is easier to read than, let's say, Airbnb's um, Terms and Conditions. Um, Some of the other books they compared to were A Brief History of Time, which was a little bit easier than most of the um, privacy policies they looked at. Great Expectations, much easier. Pride and Prejudice, you know, down near the bottom. And Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was easier than all of them. This is actually a fascinating article. And the New York Times has done really fancy graphics recently. So as you scroll down, you see these um, charts, like a scatter chart, and you see different companies. So you start, the, the first section shows that the BBC has the easiest privacy policy, but it still takes about 13 minutes to read. Remember, you're going to click on a button or a link someplace to say that you've agreed to a privacy policy, but are you spending 13 minutes to read it? Craigslist... Is one of the simplest and it only takes about two minutes. Um, Facebook is getting up to sort of college reading level, takes about 17, 18 minutes. Airbnb, 35 minutes. Might as well read Sartre's Being in Nothingness rather than Airbnb's Terms and Conditions. Um, Josh, when was the last time you read Terms and Conditions of any service or website? Be honest. Huh. Um. Probably, And I mean the whole thing. I mean, not just the first lines or the headers. Yeah, gosh, the whole thing. I
2: don't know. It's been a long time. I have done it before. I actually have, which is probably a pretty rare thing because most people just, if they even look at them at all, they skim them. Uh, or look at headlines or whatever. Um, yeah, Uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, though, I mean, there's a lot of boilerplate that's shared across uh, many privacy policies. So you can kind of skim them usually to get a pretty good idea of what's in them. If if you're somewhat familiar with the legalese that they tend to use in these privacy policies. Well, but
1: that's the point. And, and so what the New York Times does is they put a graph on the page and you can scroll down a little bit and you have middle school, high school, college, And professional career, let's call that, you know, someone with a master's or a PhD. And the majority of these terms and conditions require a college-level reading level or higher. Right Now, I don't think the majority of people who are agreeing these terms and conditions have a college-level reading level or higher. Only a few of them show up at high school level.
2: Right. Right. Which is, it, it's sort of amusing because, I mean, how, how can you possibly expect? Well, n- not only that, but I mean, a lot of people signing up for these services are maybe as young as 13 in the U.S. is, is kind of the, the cutoff for a lot of these digital services. So, I mean, you've got people age 13 on up. Um, you know, obviously a 13 year old typically is not uh, you know, has not graduated high school. You know, or, or and may or may not have a high school reading level, um, but you've you've got a whole bunch of services that require at least a college level uh, reading comprehension. Facebook,
1: for example, yeah,
2: Facebook's right right in there, um, and.
1: Apple is right on the line between college and professional career. Yeah, so, so one uh, of the harder ones. Their privacy policy takes about 16 minutes to read. So they're up in the high end.
2: Yeah. Um, what I find fascinating about this is that it's not really realistic, right? I, I mean, this is something that obviously, you know, needs to, to go before a court to actually decide legally whether, um, how binding these things are. And there's been, Some court cases, but nothing that really, like, solidifies the legitimacy of all these privacy policies and and how enforceable certain things in terms and conditions are. Um,
1: You know, one of the most complicated to read is the Walt Disney terms and conditions. It's only about nine minutes, but it's up. It's it's more complicated than Kant.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is interesting. And
1: there are probably a lot of 13 year olds signing up for <laughs> Walt Disney. Well, in many cases, it's their parents, but still. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I, I guess, I guess the challenge here is, you know, th- the lawyers are going to say, well, we have to be very careful with our wording. And, you know, if, if we're not very careful, then, you know, there could be a lawsuit or this or that. And we, we need to cover all our bases. So, Therefore, we need to have language that is very explicit and there's going to be no, you know, um, possible misinterpretation of it. Um, and then you've got on the other side, you've got, um, you know, people who say, yeah, but we also need people to be able to understand these privacy policies. But ultimately, the lawyers are going to win out because, you know, they're trying to protect the business. Um, so so that's kind of what we're, we're stuck with right now with a whole bunch of privacy policies and terms and conditions that very few people in the, in the population can really fully comprehend, even if they decided to spend 16 minutes or sometimes as much as, uh, you know, over 35 minutes to read some of these. Um, I mean, who, who, who has the time and who can, who who has the time and can comprehend them on top of that?
1: Yeah, I, I just uh, opened the Airbnb uh, privacy policy. I copied the text and I put it into a text editor. It's 18,000 words. <sighs> now, you figure that a, a novel, a general novel, starts at around 80,000 words. You know, a 250-page novel would be about 80,000 words. So this is a quarter of a novel. Uh, we should do, we should, if I had more time, I would have done a test. I'll read. I'll, I'd read a phrase, and you would pick it, whether it's Kant or Airbnb. But it's not <laughs> that obvious. But but if I just take something like Airbnb and Airbnb pay, payments may disclose your information, including personal information to courts, law enforcement, government authorities, tax authorities, or authorized third party, if and to the extent we are required and or permitted to do so by law, or if such disclosure is reasonably necessary. Colon one to comply with our legal obligations. Two, to comply with legal process to respond to blah, 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 blah. And this goes on to a sentence that's about 150 words long. Yeah. One sentence. Right. Without, you know, there's a colon in there, but it's still the same sentence. I kind of understand Airbnb because there is a certain level of personal liability that is at stake here. You know, you're renting out your property to people and Airbnb has to make sure that they don't have the responsibility for this. But I've never read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason and I'm tempted to do so now because if that will um, make me better armed to read privacy policy documents on the web, um, that's not a bad idea. I said that Apple comes up in the middle. Interestingly, Amazon is right in the middle of high school near the bottom of the most complicated. And I find that really interesting because... You know, Amazon is collecting a lot of data about you, about what you do, about what you buy, about where you go. And yet they've made their privacy policy, says about 10, 11 minutes to read, and at a simple level of language. Um, Another takeaway here is that if you scroll down a little bit more in the article, you can see how Google's privacy policy has uh, changed from the original in 2000 uh, to the current uh, level in 2019. And early on, it was about three minutes to read, and it was high school level, and then it got up, and then it got, ooh, all of a sudden, really, really hard, and then back, and it kind of was stable, until 2018, when it got shorter and simpler, because GDPR was enacted in 2018. I'll put a link in the show notes to the episode where we talked about GDPR. It is General Data Protection Regulations in the European Union, and the U.S. really needs something like this. But what's interesting is that Google's terms and conditions have been much shorter, because they're essentially... Adapting GDPR to their terms and conditions for the entire world. And a lot of big companies have found that let's just take GDPR and use this as a, as a, a solid base because it has been vetted by a lot of countries and legal professionals. Uh, So this has made Google's uh, terms and conditions simpler and shorter.
2: Right. Yeah. And th- this is something that, um, you know, we're, I think we're getting closer to in the United States. Um, there are definitely a lot of people who, uh, even people in government who are interested in having something like GDPR for the United States that, that applies to U.S. citizens and people residing in the U.S. We're, we're not quite there yet, but um, th- there have been good side effects of GDPR, uh, including that um, in some cases it, it has benefited people in other you know, regions of the world, um, including people in the U.S., um, because, for example, previously there hadn't really been very many opportunities to do things like exporting all of your data from a particular service, you know, being able to just download it all and see what exactly these companies know about you. Um, and now you have the ability to do that. And on many services, you have this option even outside of the EU. Um, so so it's, it's a great thing, I, I think... And there will be more regulations to come. I know California is working on one, and uh, and, and there's likely to eventually be one uh, on the national level in the U.S. and in many other countries as well.
1: Okay, in brief, um, we've got something – we set up these show notes before we start, and we've got an article that's been sitting in the show notes, and it's been sort of moved, being moved to each new episode that we haven't talked about yet – um, Michael Tsai is a developer, and he has a blog where he talks about a lot of Mac issues. Essentially, he links to people's comments about certain things, and he has a piece about Safari auto-submitting autofilled passwords. Now, this dates back to April, and we were going to talk about it, and we keep putting it off. But this is something that really irks me, and and this started so back in April with uh, a macOS update. Um, when you have Safari autofill your password, instead of it just filling your username and password, it Presses return. So basically it goes to log you in and you don't have any time to stop and maybe correct something if the username was wrong or if you want to use a different username. And I find this really annoying, don't you? Yeah,
2: I personally, I don't really use Safari. Remember, I'm the one who uses the weird browsers,
1: Waterfox and all that. Yeah, but you have to be able to talk about it. Come on.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I agree. Actually, I, I think, I think this is not, um, it's not a good practice to, to sort of. You know, hit the button for the user. Um, it's fine if, to fill it in. Um, be, but give the user the opportunity to decide, oh, and you know, to look at the username field and go, "Oh yeah, okay, that's that is right. I do want this to be submitted.
1: So obviously, autofill means that you when you go to click in the field, you'll see a little drop down menu. It'll see your username. You won't see the password. If you have multiple usernames, you'll see them. And if you if you select one of them, boom, it goes, and it goes really quickly. You can obviously stop and not select anything and type manually, but you do want to maybe have that password auto-filled because it's easier. And I, I just, it seems like something wrong. They're not doing this on iOS when they auto-fill passwords. Generally, when I go to a website, I want to enter my username and password, then perhaps click... Keep me logged in, and then click the button to move on. And you can't do that. You have to think about clicking the keep me logged in first.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is one of those things that it almost feels like a bug, you know. Uh, and in fact, um, some have submitted you know bug reports to Apple and said, look, you know, fix this. Uh, stop auto-submitting password forms. This is not right. This is not supposed to happen. It doesn't look like Apple's listening yet, so we'll 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 see what happens.
1: Just to follow up on passwords, an interesting article from May in Fast Company. Everyone hates passwords. Good news, they're about to die. You know, Face ID, Touch ID, and then they sign in with Apple um, that we discussed after the WWDC. Um, all these things, I think we're maybe reaching the point where we will get to the end of passwords.
2: Um, we're, we're getting closer to it, I would say. Um, th- th- I mean, there's always, I-, I think passwords will always exist in some form or other.
1: Yes, but, but con- consider the sign in with Apple. You still have a password, but that password isn't seen by anyone, by the company you sign in with. And you don't have to remember it. That's what the difference is. It's not that the passwords are gone. You still need to authenticate. But what's interesting is that people are coming up with ways to not have to go through the hassle of remembering passwords.
2: Well, so think about it this way. So regardless of whether you're using sign-in with Apple or Google or Facebook, with any one of those services, you have to have a password to log into that service that you're then using to log into other services.
1: Well, the sign-in with Apple would be based on your iCloud password yeah. that you sign in on your Mac or your iOS device. If you sign in on a different computer or on a, a Windows PC, you'll still have to sign in with iCloud to be able to do that. Um, but the point is that on for, for Mac users and iOS users, on normal use, you won't have to do anything because it'll be inheriting your credentials from what you've already signed in. Right,
2: right. So, yeah, I absolutely agree that, um, you know, Sign in with Apple is going to make a lot of sense for people who use Apple devices. No there's no question about that in my mind. I am kind of of the opinion that yes, passwords are a problem, um but I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon. Ser- services like sign in with Apple are great uh, and they are and they're helpful in that regard. And I I've mentioned before there's also um Squirrel, you know, and 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 certain other uh, technologies that are out there that are trying to to push people to move beyond the password and to use something else instead that's more secure. Um, we're not quite there yet in terms of adoption, and and really the technologies exist to to do this better and to live in a world where we don't have passwords, but. Everyone is so used to passwords that it's so hard to just take that away from people because that's how people know how to sign into things.
1: That's a good point. And if you don't have your device, you're you're stuck. Um, we, we we mentioned after the WWDC that you'll be able to use the Apple Watch to sign into certain secure elements of macOS, like those preference panes where you need to click the padlock and enter your username and your password. And of course, this is because you've authenticated um, with iCloud on your Mac, you've authenticated with iCloud on your iPhone. Your Apple Watch is connected with your iPhone to know that it's you and it's on your wrist so it knows it's not on someone else's or you've entered the passcode on your watch to get in. So there's a chain here that goes on in order to make this possibility of saving a little bit of time. In, in some ways, it's like a Rube Goldberg thing where each device depends on another device, and when it works, it's going to be fine. But it's true that if one device fails along the line, then the whole system is just, you know, it just stops working, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's summer, and pretty soon it's going to start getting hot. I know it's been hot where you are, Josh. We'll try to find some interesting topics for the summer, because as usual, there's not a lot of news. Uh, The first public beta of macOS Catalina is going to be out in a couple weeks, And at that point, everyone's going to start talking about it. A lot of websites have already started publishing tutorials about how to do this and that with iOS 13, which is really limited to just developers. Um, But we'll have some interesting information about that in the future. So until next week, Josh, stay secure and stay cool.
2: All right, stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.